Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy is a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family, who live right here in town. And here's the thing, they offer a lot more than just recliners. Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock, ready to take home or deliver today. So go visit the showroom for Lazy Boy of Amarillo today at 3636 Sansi. That's Lazy Boy of Amarillo, 3636 Sansi. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Mariner Wealth Advisors, online at marinerwealthadvisors.com, to Glass Doctor of Amarillo, you can find them at glassdoctor.com, to Windmill Dental at windmill-dental.com, and to Casey Carpet One, online at Casey Carpet One. The latest issue of Brick and Elm, our September-October edition, is out now. It's a really fun one. You can read it for free online at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Brady Ragland. Brady is the chief executive officer of the Amarillo Tri-State Exposition, which is home, of course, of the Tri-State Fair and Rodeo. And the fair starts this weekend. Everybody knows the fair, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. But not everybody knows that the Tri-State Expo is a nonprofit and that it operates all year long, not just during this week in September. And Brady, who is native to Texas but not to Amarillo, is relatively new to the area and the organization, and he's bringing a unique perspective and experience to this local institution. So I wanted to hear more about his story. It includes a lot of background in agriculture and livestock-related events, and I wanted to hear about the fair. So here's Brady Raglan. Brady Raglan, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Good. I'm uh, I'm glad to, to have you here, and I want to start with you. I know we'll talk about the fair and some immediate stuff that you're involved with, but before we get to that point, tell me how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. Great question. So I grew up in Lubbock. Okay. Um, my mom and dad were divorced, but uh, my my mom lived in Lubbock, so I went to school at Friendship High School. All right. Uh, dad was the county extension agent and has been for 30 years. Uh, at the time, he was in Floyd County in Floydada, just down the road, a little south and east of here. Mm-hmm. You know, most of my high school experience and friends was all about sports and uh, playing baseball and uh I didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up that were involved in agriculture, but when I went to visit my dad, uh, that's pretty much all we did. That's what he did, right? That's what he did, and that's what we did. I got uh, farming and ranching really on both sides of my family, my mom and my dad. They they both rodeoed in some capacity, aunts, uncles, uh, cousins today that, that still participate. But for me, kind of a niche was... Um, being involved in the showing aspect, the 4-H and the FFA programs, I, I really took to those okay. and enjoyed those. And so growing up, participated in everything that those two programs had to offer. Uh, obviously, What did you show? What kind of stuff? Yeah, so first pig I ever showed was actually at the South Plains Fair when I was three years old. Uh, Dad had to tie a little bit of ribbon around my pig's tail so that I knew which one was mine as yeah. I walked in the ring. And so they have a video recording, you know, on the old 
handheld uh, back, camcorders. camcorders back in the day. And, and I've watched it a time or two. It's been a long time. But uh, I, I wore a hat, which Dad was adamantly opposed to in the show ring after that. But when you're three, I think you can do whatever you want. So I walked in the ring and I immediately found my mom in the stands and just waved to her, to the whole crowd while the show was going on and, and my pig was walking around wherever. So anyway, grew up uh, showing pigs, grew up showing cattle. Our family mm-hmm. raises cattle really on both sides as well, too. So that's kind of where I, I landed. Uh, my wife, actually, now she, she grew up showing sheep. So we, we may have all sorts of species moving <laughs> forward. But growing up, I was participating in cattle and, and, and pig shows. Okay. And so that, that dominated my summers along with baseball growing up. Um, but then, you know, so as I was getting into high school, uh, friendships 4A, sports were competitive. I'm not an overly big or athletic guy. So I kind of fell out of those and picked up more of the sport, I guess, of livestock judging, which okay. is placing four animals uh, of the same species and ranking them. And then you get compared on how you ranked them versus how a, an official would rank them. Right. And so then you have to defend your placing with some oral reasons and kind of learn to formulate what they call reasons where you, you provide your explanation of why you placed them the way you did. That led to me, I guess, receiving a scholarship to, to, to go to school at Blinn College. I thought I was going to okay. be an Aggie growing up. So I went down to Blinn and Brenham for two years. Great to get away from home and, and see all that um, that part of the world had to offer. And then I, uh, I ended up transferring back to Texas Tech. So okay. uh, the, the coach there recruited me and just a long story. But ended up coming back home, went to Tech, got my master's there at Tech and, and helped coach the, uh, the livestock judging team for three years. Which is a really big deal at Tech. Like I, I feel like you know, that program, they're always traveling to Australia and winning championships and doing all kinds of things like that. Yeah, the livestock judging program, the meats judging program, Mm -hmm. and the wool judging program are really kind of nationally renowned. Uh, I was honored to be able to compete there and and participate. While at Tech, we were fortunate enough to win the 2011 National Championship, which, you know, if if you grow up in sports and you hear all this national championship competition, sometimes you, you only think about it in a sports realm, but there's national competitions, obviously, and everything else too and it was an honor to be able to compete on that team I actually was high individual overall so do that you know grow up and dad dad took us all over the place uh, going to camps and and uh, learning more about the livestock judging and to kind of have it culminate out your last contest Mm -hmm. uh, winning that that was a special time and before we move past that I I think of like student athletes you know who are playing baseball or basketball and compete at that high level some of them move on to the pros. Some of them, you know, just become really good, you know, weekend basketball players. Like when, when you're in the livestock judging, do you, do you think of it, you know, regardless of your career, like do students think of it as, oh, this might be something that becomes, you know, a source of income or that I continue to do as an adult? That's a great question. I don't think that anyone participating in livestock meets or wool judging thinks that specifically related to those contests that there's a future in that i mean sure if if you competed in livestock judging there are a need for like for instance the fairs coming up we're going to have a need for a cattle judge so having that skill set will open those opportunities to be able to serve as that judge per se across the country but that doesn't pay the bills okay but what you do expect to get out of it are those connections traveling up and down the roads going to different contests meeting with farmers, producers, uh, all sorts of things within the agricultural industry, you kind of hope that the livestock judging experience as a whole okay. leads you to your career. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. and those are skills that are transferable, whether you get into cattle feeding or 
you know, raising your own cattle, something like that, right? Yeah, and it's not just so much like traditional animal husbandry, like raising the actual animals, which I think maybe it would be the first thought if I didn't grow up in that is that's what you would think of. Oh, that helps you raise better cows or pigs. Mm -hmm. But really what I gained from it the most would be like decision-making skills. You only have 12 minutes to make a decision. I know there's only four animals, but there's a lot of factors on the way that you rank them. And then probably even maybe just as importantly would be uh, an oral defense of those of your rankings teaches you confidence. It teaches you organization when you're speaking in front of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it teaches you to prioritize certain factors over the others, and you have to do that within a certain time allotment. And so I've I've used those skill sets much more than the sheer well. This is how to raise a better cattle or better pigs or whatever. Okay. So those those skills stay with you forever. I, I would attribute livestock judging to a lot of that skill set. So that's where I was. And then it was neat to kind of compete. And then literally, like you mentioned, uh, basketball, weekend basketball, there is really no weekend basketball component when you finish livestock judging, you're sure. basically just done. Yeah. And, but to stay on and coach the next team was kind of a, you get to see the reverse of what you'd been doing this whole time where you see it from a coach's point of view, the trying to motivate student not necessarily athletes in this case, but uh, students that are participating in extracurricular activities and how they're managing their time, but you're also trying to get the most out of them. And and that part was neat. I enjoyed the coaching aspect. Uh, and then while I was actually getting my master's, actually, we uh, I got a call to be the livestock director of the San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo down in San Antonio. So okay. I had not defended my master's yet, and I moved to San Antonio uh, and was still working on defending my master's. And so when I moved down there, you know, right out of college, it's probably one of the largest livestock shows in the country. There's about 30,000 different entries between all mm-hmm. the, the shows. Uh, it's a little unique uh, because you work all year long for really one 20-day moment in February. Right. All year long, we were trying to get ready for that particular show. But it kept me involved in the industry that I had grown up in, Mm -hmm. but it also provided a lot of leadership opportunities, uh, not just to try to make the shows specifically happen, but also I wasn't responsible for 1,200 volunteers. So there you see, you know, no matter what nonprofit you're involved in, all of a sudden you're you're trying to manage committees and committee leaderships and personalities and try to put people in the right fit where they're the most successful, but also the most effective. And so not only it, it was just as much in that role about managing the true entries and the awards and securing the judges and all the things that make the show happen as it was manage, managing the personalities behind the scenes. When you were in college and then getting your master's, like, was that sort of what you were pursuing? Did you think, OK, I would like to get into this sort of thing, you know, nonprofit but related to these big events, related to agriculture, related to livestock. I mean, was that a plan or did it just kind of happen? No, not at all. (laughs) Matter of fact, I got my master's in ruminant nutrition. So I was going to, you know, a lot of different avenues there, but potentially work for a feed company or or, or something like that to manage uh, or, or balance diets and nutrition to, or nutrition for beef cattle. I had no clue what I wanted to do. And really, How did you end up on their radar to, <clears throat> to offer you that job? The connections through some of the things I've mentioned earlier, through the livestock judging component and also stock showing in general, it's a big circle, but it becomes small, just like a lot of niche okay. industries. Um, 
mainly the the folks at San Antonio, Dr. Chris Skaggs actually at Texas A&M had recruited me to go to A&M after I had went to Blinn. And he was really tied in with the, the leadership group at San Antonio and said, hey, I know he didn't go to A&M, which a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, schools like to stick to their their alma mater when when trying to fill positions when they're asked. But at the same time, I, I appreciate that he threw my name in the hat, even though I was getting my master's at Tech with, hmm. hey, th- this kid's about to graduate with his master's. I think he'd be a good fit in this livestock director role. So they called me up and, and I moved down there. But to answer your question, no, no, not at all. I, I don't think you can... Uh, being a livestock director or, or working in now fair management per se, I don't think it's a a dream that most kids have growing up. You hear of being a doctor, a lawyer, an athlete, or a singer. Nobody grows up thinking I'm going to be a fair manager, unless they're yeah. maybe their fa- their parents did it per se. But um, but it is a really neat opportunity, uh, and, and a lot of the things that I do now at the, the Tri-State Fair, I, I learned from my time at San Antonio about facilities management, people management. Um, you got to manage interns. You've got to manage parents and, and FFA advisors and ag teachers that are calling, asking questions. You've got to put together committees and try to make them the most effective as possible. So I learned all that kind of down there. Did you feel equipped to do that? I'm, I'm thinking of somebody coming right out of school, you know, finishing your master's. And then you get offered a job and it involves managing 1200 volunteers, a huge facility. Like, did it feel like something that you could be good at or was there like a pretty severe learning curve? I felt like I had the background to be good at it, but I I think I was probably just naive enough graduating Mm -hmm. college when you're a college kid that you think you can maybe do anything that I'll go down there. And uh, not that I was overconfident, I would say, but I just felt like... This is a good fit for my skill set, and I feel like I know enough about the industry to be successful. And and th- from that point on, it's just meeting people and knowing it's working with people, as mm-hmm. all things really in life are. But looking back, when I look back and I reflect on where I was as a 22, 23-year-old and, get, and and basically being handed those keys, I was not ready. Yeah. No, yeah. not not at all. A lot uh, of on-the-job learning. A lot of on-the-job learning, and, and really the best kind of trial by fire, uh, t- you either sink or swim in mm-hmm. some of that type of stuff. So, but, but that's a great question. No, I did not feel fully prepared for that, but, uh, I had, I had great role models while I was there. My, my boss there, uh, a guy named Jeff and, and we still stay in contact today. He's still within the industry. He's moved on to rodeo Austin. And so he works in Austin now, but we, we had a lot of, uh, 2 a.m. in the middle of the the pig barns discussing this or that. I mean, conversations. Uh, we, you know, you you live on site during these large Back events. Days, yeah. yeah. So so I mean, it was middle of the night. Oh, this you know we've got this major problem or we got to go solve it. I really liked the. Uh, what I kind of fell in love with was, and it and it's a double edged sword because you hate it but you love it. Would be the the rush of the problem, the quick problem solving that mm-hmm. comes with large event planning. Uh, that part kind of once it gets in your blood, it's it's hard to get out of. And I, I learned that down at San Antonio. That as much as I hated being out in the rain in a parking lot addressing some issue at two a.m., uh, when you get done with that and you have enough time to catch your breath that's the part that you love the most. It's just, it's kind of exciting in a weird, a weird way. <laughs> How long did that last San Antonio? Five years. Five years. Okay. Until what, what so, year? Uh, so I would have, it would have been 2019. I got okay. what I thought was a, a telemarketer or a butt dial. I got a phone number, a call from Montgomery, Alabama. I'd never even been to the state of Alabama. Okay. 
uh, and it was a job opportunity to move to Montgomery and work for the Alabama Farmers Federation, which is just uh, another way of the, the Farm Bureau, Texas Farm Bureau. Okay. So a lot of folks know the Farm Bureau through their insurance. They may, you know, get an insurance quote for Farm Bureau. But what I worked for, or what I, the side of the operation that I worked at was more of the nonprofit, the ag advocacy side. So the the job offer was, hey, moved from San Antonio, where I had gotten comfortable and familiar, et cetera, to a place that you'd never been, three states away, but we want you to be over our beef division, our equine division, hay and forage, and then sheep and goats. And I had no idea what that even meant. What does that mean you're over these divisions? But what it meant was we basically want you to travel around the state and meet with the members of our association that raise or produce those certain commodities. And, and we want you to just ask them, do they have any local issues, any national issues, any state issues that we can help lobby or advocate for on their behalf? Because that's what Farm Bureau and, and the, the Farmers Federation was, was basically trying to help farmers, agricultural um, members succeed. Mm -hmm. And we dealt with, you know, uh, I was exposed in that particular role to a lot of the political side of agriculture and right. political side of life, really, uh, going to the state house, going to D.C. I didn't do uh, a lot of the direct lobbying, but some of the policies that we had internally and how it married up with like state regulations or national regulations, I would have to figure out, you know, how to either explain this to our producer members or what we could do about it. Could we get the law changed? Could we not? Do we have enough votes at the state, you know, the state house or not? And so, uh, and then with that, there was also a small component, which turned into a larger component to manage the largest livestock show in Alabama. All right. So totally different scene out in Alabama, just a lot less, uh, 4-H and, and FFA youth, like Texas is its own machine. It's sure. unbelievable the amount of opportunities Texas provides to folks that are interested in that opportunity. But Alabama just didn't have quite as much uh, opportunity in that. But they did have a large show in March that I was responsible for. So I felt like that tied me back to what I had been doing at mm -hmm. San Antonio, but was able to expand a little bit of my horizons, not only because it was two states away, but also because I, I had never really been exposed to the, the political side of sure. things before. Do you know so, how you ended up on their radar? Well, just same like, connections? Same connections. I mean, obviously not the exact same, but same type of story where it's just, uh, it's who you meet. And mm -hmm. somebody tells somebody, hey, you know, this, this guy might be a good fit. You know, you may call him up. It was a weird exchange over the phone where something about my eventual boss, his, his name was Brian out there. I just felt like it was the, a, a God thing. or, or you, you, Sometimes in life, you just feel like th this is somewhere where I'm being led to go. Right. I don't really know why. And, uh, and I still stay in contact with those folks today. Uh, I just had a great experience out there. Tremendous leadership of that group. I mean, that's a billion-dollar company. It's, a, it's an insurance company, but also a, the nonprofit ag advocacy side, much like Texas Farm Bureau hit, is here in Texas. But to see a, an, an organization that's a, a billion-dollar company, but I ate lunch right across from the president who was as open and honest as someone could be, it was just such an eye-opening experience about leadership and about, you know, if you ever get a chance to be in a leadership role, that I, I wanted to be just like them. Yeah. And I think that was maybe a God thing of, of maybe knowing what was the next step uh, in the career path, but kind of you needed to see these examples of great leaders. Not that I didn't have them at San Antonio, but just something about the way they managed people and were so open with, you know, statistics and facts about the company to just, I was you know, low on the totem pole, but I could have walked in our CEO's office at any at any moment and he would have you know, address my concerns. And I thought, man, that is, that's such a great leadership style. I hope someday I'm like that if I ever get that opportunity. So tell me then how that 
transition from Alabama to Tri-State Expo and Fair happened? So after I graduated high school, my dad, who I mentioned was a county extension agent in Floyd County, moved to Randall County. So okay. him and my stepmom moved to Angela, uh, moved to Canyon. And Angela uh, took over the role as sponsorship and marketing director for the Tri-State Fair okay. Radio. So when I lived in San Antonio, when I lived when I was in college, when I lived in San Antonio, and when I lived in Alabama, I would come and visit Dad and, and Angela often, and uh, and got familiar with the Tri-State Fairgrounds. Matter of fact, when I was at San Antonio, I got asked to judge the uh, the cattle show at the Tri at Tri-State. So right. I flew from San Antonio. I had a horrible experience. I think I had. Uh, uh, eating some bad raisin canes or something right before I hopped on the plane. <laughs> I was sick as a dog right up until I, I judged at Tri-State. So I didn't have a great experience uh, most of my time at the fair, but but I was familiar with the fair. Mm -hmm. And I got to know during my time at San Antonio and even in Alabama, but really at San Antonio, there, you know, there's conferences and conventions for everything, right? And so they have a fairs convention and a Texas fairs convention. And I got to know Virgil Bartlett, who Virgil was the longtime fair manager okay. or, um, uh, at the Tri-State state fair so i got to know him there and so it had a reputation outside this area oh absolutely oh yeah lots of folks know about the tri-state fair and so uh very involved in a lot of the state and national organizations fair organizations so people oh, definitely know about the tri-state fair outside of just our local community here mm -hmm. and anyway i got to know virgil and whenever he got ready to retire he thought to call me up uh, in alabama and we talked through the position and the role um I, I laugh about it now because actually as I was getting ready to propose to my wife, uh, we were headed down to the beach in Destin, Florida. She didn't know this yet, obviously, but uh, we were driving down. It had already been on the heels of that show that I mentioned in Alabama. So I was tired and worn out and uh, ready to get to the beach and, and was going to ask her to marry uh, me. And then about uh, 30 minutes into our drive, Virgil called me and we talked like an hour down, going mm. down the road. Well, I had plenty on my mind about yeah. how this was about to go this, this afternoon, this evening. And Virgil had talked to me about the position and uh and and i told him hey i'm, I'm probably gonna have to call you back at, yeah. a, at a different time and so but anyway after four or five different conversations i flew up here interviewed and uh, got hired on as kind of an apprentice role for him for about six months and then took over not this past january but the january before that right so i i want to talk about the tri-state fair and thinking of my listeners who maybe know it as you know the week in september that's their experience of it. And like you said, you know, you can spend the entire year preparing for that one week. And there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know, at the fairgrounds beyond just the fair event. So give me an idea of what your job entails at this point, you know, as, as you're thinking of the entire year. No, you're exactly right. I think most of the listener base and what I've noticed since I moved here, and honestly, this was something that I had to get used to because I mentioned my time at San Antonio. We worked all year long for 20 days in February. Mm -hmm. When I moved to Amarillo the, and, and and started at the fairgrounds, the difference is we're a 365 organization. So at San Antonio, we only had to put on one event. Here, the fair, which is our nine days in September, is one component. It's a huge component. Right. But it's one component of our entire organization, our entire business. We are in the market to recruit large and small, but all types of events to Amarillo. So we have everything from nonprofit um, fundraisers. You think about the Make-A-Wish uh, mm -hmm. events out there. You think about some of our chili cook-offs. You think about the Chamber Barbecue, which has recently moved out there. We we have a, a lot of nonprofit events that utilize our space, but then we also have large world championship equestrian events that happen right after the fair that a lot of folks may not be quite as familiar with. So uh, the mindset may be, 
what matter of fact, when I first moved here and I got my hair cut, you know, we always chatting it up when you get your hair cut. And I said, I, I work for the fairgrounds. Oh, what do you do the rest of the year? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's a, a, a shift in mentality that we've been working to try to educate folks using this hundred year celebration as a way to try to educate folks that the fairgrounds are a lot more than just the fair and rodeo in September. We're, we're constantly trying to recruit folks to Amarillo to stay in hotels, eat at our restaurants, shop here locally, um, you know, all the things that comes with tourism. But then the biggest event, the, the only self-produced that, event that we have, and the biggest fundraiser for the fairgrounds, whether it be improvements, whether it be uh, the, the ability to go out and, and, and recruit other events, comes from what, you know, how well the fair and rodeo okay. go in September. So is that something that always feels risky to you? I, there, there's always been a joke in Amarillo that like the, the first cold or drizzly weather we get is generally during the fair. And so I always think of events like that where so much is riding on, you know, the the people that come, the income that it makes, and then you have two or three days of wet weather and you have to shut down or nobody comes. Like, h- how do you manage that sort of um, risk or disappointment or whatever going through the year? Uh, you you hold your breath, you, you cross your fingers, you count, you know, you pray. No, mm-hmm. uh, there's some risk management tools that you can take advantage of on the rain side of things. Um, you know, there's rain insurance sure. that fairs can purchase, large events can purchase in case we just had, which would be a welcome uh, yeah. sight to a lot of folks. You said cold and drizzly. I think th- that actually would be... Uh, people an, get excited. Yeah, about people it. would get yeah. excited about that. Hey, uh, finally fair weather. Yeah, exactly. From what we've been going through the last uh, couple months and with all this heat. But um, yeah, you, it is. A, it's a huge risk, right? It's an outdoor event. Mm-hmm. Uh, you only have once a year. You're not, you're not, you're not enclosed in a, a, and have a whole year to make up for some lost revenue or whatnot. So we kind of put all of our eggs into to that basket. It's been that way for 100 years, literally, and, and more. Um, but you know, where we are in the calendar, we were, we were talking about this in the office here recently compared to a lot of state fairs around the country happen in June, July, August, uh, they have to battle immense heat. And, And I think we're at a point where yes, the weather is always unpredictable here in Amarillo. And yes, especially during those middle to end weekends in September where the weather's changing. But when we can catch a nice crisp, evening, you know, some of these other state fairs never have the opportunity to do, right. get it, to do that. Matter of fact, some of them have to delay their carnival openings because they're so hot. The rides are so hot okay. and everything like that. We don't have to do that as much, but you know, you know how it is if you've lived here long enough that the, that week in September is always, I mean, we could, it could be snow, it mm-hmm. could be a hundred. It, it could be, be the best week of the it year. It could be the best week of the year. So, um, I, you know, we kind of embrace that okay. a little bit. You embrace that challenge. Uh, our our staff apparel can range from anything from coats to, you know, obviously uh, shorts yeah. <laughs> in some cases. But, uh, yeah, it, there's a lot riding on it. We try to do the best in terms of risk mitigation. Sometimes we also think about, like, uh, this new Dancing in the Dirt concert series that we started. Part of the thought process of that was it's if we move inside the Amarillo National Center— you take away that weather component. Right. So let's say it's raining and it's miserable outside or it's windy and blowing 50. At least we can have a concert inside. So, you know, some of those things we have to think through on okay. where do we take some risk and where do we not? So you mentioned the 100 years that, that this is the 100th anniversary of the fair. Um, it's happening pretty new, you know, or early, I guess, in your tenure here since you've just been doing it a couple of years. How do you think about that? Do you think, okay... 100 years, we need to celebrate by giving everybody the same 
Tri-State Fair everybody knows and loves? Or do you think, okay, we need to try some new things. We need to make this one special. That's a great question. And something that I've wrestled with in my own head is I don't have the history that a lot of folks have that have been around here, but here we are with this immense historical milestone of our organization trying to make sure that we've put things in place to capture that milestone in the best way possible. So last year, knowing that this milestone was on the forefront, we put together a working committee of longtime fair uh, fairgoers, folks on our board, past presidents that could say, how should we best celebrate our 100-year anniversary. And so they came together with several key elements. We wanted to educate folks about the fair and its history, but also uh, we wanted to educate folks on the the 365 component of our business Mm -hmm. and use this 100 years to kind of help tell our story. We wanted to celebrate. So one thing we're going to do this year is give away free gate admission on the first Friday of fair, which is our opening day, as a give back to the community for supporting us for 100 years. We want everyone to come to the fair uh, for free on that first Friday. Um, we're calling it Centennial Day. And so that that's one thing that came out of that working group. And then we wanted to, to use this this 100-year anniversary as, as a way to help fundraise. And not necessarily to just go out and, and, and start asking for money, but to, to show folks that here's where we've been the last 100 years and maybe set a vision for where we want to go moving forward. So, you know, to answer your question, I, I think we've tried to keep that historical... Folks that come out this year will recognize the same fair that hopefully they've known and grown and love, but hopefully start to see signs of things that are to come on the okay. horizon. Like for the, for instance, this year will be the first year that we're going to add a, a wine and beer component okay. over near the Rex Baxter area, a wine and beer garden that, that Crush actually downtown is right. going to partner with to bring us some of their local flavors. Um, and so seeing things that are kind of popping up, uh, you know, hopefully sets the stage for, yeah, this is the same traditional fair that we've had, but I can tell that maybe it's moving forward in a, right. in a new direction. It's a balance between we, we need to maintain the tradition, but we also need to continue to grow and evolve because the fair today is not the same as it was when I was a kid, yep. you know, in the eighties, but the, the changes need to be, I guess, incremental. You don't, you don't drastically change it overnight. Nobody likes just full on change. Everyone gets a little apprehensive, no matter if they're a fan of change or not. I think they get a little apprehensive of mass change. So you're Mm -hmm. exactly right. We've got to find ways to continue to provide the nostalgia. I mean, that's part of the reason you go to a fair, right? Is is maybe you grew up here and now you want to take your kids there and you want them to experience and have those same feelings that you had when you were a kid growing up. So you don't want to totally reshape the way that the fair, uh, you know, feels, but there's got to be some progress to prevent the whole, well, I saw it last year. Why why do I need to go back this year? Well, I saw it two years ago. It was the exact same this year. So that incremental change is kind of a delicate balance that we struggle with internally on what's the best way to provide this to to fairgoers. To close this section, I want to hear from you since you are relatively new to Amarillo. You're not new to large events like this or the, the agriculture world. But I'd like to hear you talk, as you think about the 100 years of the fair, as you think about the role that it plays, like what have you discovered in Amarillo? And and, and talk about like how central the fair and what it does, what it was meant to do, what it does now. Like how central of a role does that play in this community? Yeah, uh, great question. And in doing some of the historical research that we've done to try to get ready for the 100 year celebration, it's really opened my eyes to the fact of kind of along that lines of the last question that in some ways, the fairs 
are exactly the same as what they began with. 1899, the first uh, the first kind of organized fair in this area that's on record, uh, it was to try to bring the community together. It was to try to promote agriculture and our Western heritage. It was to try to entertain folks with trapeze artists and, you know, high flying acts. Hmm. That's not undifferent than what we're doing right here in 2023. So uh, I think fairs are what I've learned and what I feel, and especially here in Amarillo, because uh, more than any place I've ever lived, Amarillo does have a sense of community. It has such a giving spirit to the people that live here to promote or to try to uh, progress like local nonprofits or Mm -hmm. people in need. I've just seen such a giving heart from a lot of the folks that I've met here in Amarillo. And really, I think fairs uh, offer that place for a community to get together, uh, to share in an an actual physical activity. You know, so much of our life now is on our phone. Uh, It's it's in our basement. It's in our living room, watching the television or or watching our iPads or whatever. And a fair provides an actual, real, tangible experience where it's face-to-face interaction. It's out in the community. You're meeting people. You're talking to people. You're going with your family and your friends. There's not a whole lot of those types of activities mm-hmm. left anymore. You know, the baseball games offer that and and uh, just a handful. But fairs kind of represent that, uh, and they have for a long time. And I think that's the one advantage we'll have continuing to move forward is that real, tangible experience. Yeah. The, the, the fair, to me, is one of those places that it, it engages all the different senses. Like, you know, I, I've, I've heard a lot about how smells can, you know, generate memories and get attached to emotions and stuff like that. And when I smell, you know, the sawdust and, you know, the just livestock and stuff like that, like I think of the fair, that yeah. that combination of smells, whether it's the food or the animals, all those things like that, it's, it smells like my childhood. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of families that probably feel like that. And they're, you're right. They're wanting to recreate that. And you just can't get that anywhere else. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, honestly, I feel a sense of responsibility for that. And we do as a, as a staff and an organization to provide that experience to the the community. It's a, it's a quality of life experience. I mean, what would living in Amarillo be like if there was no fair? Mm-hmm. So probably to some, maybe it would be the exact same, but to others, that is a historical part of their, or, or, or memorable part of your childhood. And what you would, you just mentioned all the, all the sensations that come back when you see a carnival ride or you smell fair food or, or what whatever, that experience is something that we don't take lightly. I, I want to try in the next however long uh, to try to build on that experience, to make it as positive as it can be for fairgoers to where they're making memories with their family, with their friends, uh, amongst the community. And, uh, and, and we don't take that, that kind of responsibility lightly. This episode is supported by StoryBridge, an early childhood literacy program. In Potter and Randall counties, less than half of the children entering kindergarten are ready to learn to read. And this educational deficit at age five negatively affects a child's performance in grades one all the way up through 12. So a couple of years ago, StoryBridge launched the Dolly Parton Imagination Library Program to address this problem. Thanks to generous local donors, more than 6,000 children under the age of five are now registered and receive a new age-appropriate book in the mail every month. And this comes at no cost to their families, which I love. StoryBridge wants to expand this program, though. They want to reach more than 10,000 area children. And so that's where they need your help. To give, to get involved, visit storybridgeama.org and learn more. That's storybridgeama.org.
Okay, I'm back. Brady, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes dozens of cowboy hats, showing how that indispensable part of the Western wardrobe has changed over the decades. I'm sure you have seen a variety of, of cowboy hats in the work that you do yes. uh, and will during Fair Week. Uh, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Before I do, can I give a shout out to the Panhandle Plains uh, Museum? Absolutely. Renee Dantes, uh, Mm -hmm. who works there, she helped us. She was the one that organized a lot of our old archives and our files. So I want to give her a shout out because she came to the fair for, and she's actually a a fair kid herself. I think her granddad was at the South Plains Fair in Lubbock. And so um, anyway, she she had a tie and she really helped us. She's an indispensable resource for us too with Brick and Elm. Is, Is always able to find those historical photos just so good at her job and Panhandle Plains just as the repository for all of that history is yes. amazing. So I want to give them a quick shout out. Yeah, and absolutely. Then, then the question on what, what it looks like in the next 10 years, you know, what I hope is that we are able to grow, but still retain the small town community feel that I think draws so many folks either here or that have lived here, you know, back to come back. I, Sure, you want more restaurants, more shopping, more things to do, but but can you do that while retaining just this kind of spirit that is Amarillo? I hope we're able to retain that in the next 10 years. Okay. Other than wind or rain and drizzle during fair week, what does this area have too much of? Gas stations? I, I don't know. I, I feel like everywhere you go these days, there's a new uh, there's a new gas station. If you run out of gas in, in Amarillo, it, it is it is your own fault. You're uh, always within you, about a hundred feet and can push your car to a gas station. And I don't know what that is. I, I don't know the, the 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 recent push for it, but it seems like they're everywhere. You know, they're they're it's such a good experience now. When you go in, they're so clean. They got all these things mm-hmm. to buy and stuff. But anyway, I I feel like there's one on one on every street. But it, it's been brought up before by guests, and it's one of those things that I don't often think about because. I've grown up here, and so it, it's always been it's always been Tootin' Totems and pack sacks and all that stuff. Uh, but a lot of newcomers have that perspective. Mm-hmm. They're like, there are more gas stations here than anywhere I've ever lived. I promise you there is. And I guess it works. I mean, yeah. they wouldn't be building them if no, exactly there were, right. wasn't a customer base. And, and, and it makes sense. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a throughput with I-40 and 27 that there would be maybe more than just another town. But gosh, I, I can't remember a time where there seems like there's more going up than there are now. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Uh, rain. Um Trees, maybe, and and I say that because I did live in in Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, and and what a difference it, it was. But uh, you know, maybe this is weird too. Uh, now that you say it, I feel like every every steak I've had from these local restaurants has been good. But I, I would feel like almost the beef capital of the world here. We would have more more steakhouses. Mm-hmm. Like there would just be an abundance of steakhouses, like there are gas stations, but. Uh, I I really feel like maybe uh, for what you think about Amarillo, just if you if you didn't live here, you know there, there's maybe not quite as many that specialize that in that as as you would think. That's a valid point. Uh, I've had guests before say that you know the best steak you can cook in Amarillo is one on your grill in your backyard because the meat's so good. Um, but it I think it is surprising to people that we have a whole lot of Tex-Mex places, a whole lot of Thai restaurants, you know, but. Not a lot of steakhouses. No, that seriously. And, and I think, you, you know, you you obviously think about the Big Texan and it gets mm-hmm. a lot of national uh, notoriety. I, I don't know why there's maybe not more local restaurants. Just focusing, small ones. Yeah, yeah, that focus on the steak experience. So. Okay, that's that's an interesting uh, answer. What's your favorite local coffee or tea shop? Not a big coffee guy. My wife has gotten me into coffee a little bit more, but uh, I'd say HTO. Okay. 
That's uh, coconut tea. There's I, I like it especially on the when I'm when I'm trying to be healthy, which I'm I'm usually mm-hmm. not. But uh, go in there and and get some unsweet coconut tea. It, it feels sweet enough, but it's yeah, not. You know what I mean? Coconut tea is good. Coconut tea is good. Okay. What's your favorite food at the fair? Do you get to eat any of the fair food while you're there, or is it just like I, I don't? If I eat another turkey leg, then no, I'm... we do, and and I'm not a, a turkey leg guy, but probably just the traditional corn dog. I mean, okay. kind of like we talked about the senses and the and it just you got to have one for nostalgic mm-hmm. reasons, uh, maybe a fried cheese. But I, I would say a, a corn dog is is still probably my favorite fair food. Do you guys, the employees, do you walk? you know, the midway and, and have a favorite place to stop and get lunch during fair week? Yeah, I think, I think so. Every, every staff member probably has their little niche of, mm-hmm. of where they like to go, whether it be a lemonade or you want to get, you know, uh, uh, some curly fries or something like that. Uh, but do we get to eat at some point you get burnt out of that smell a little sure. bit by the yeah. end of fair? I'm like, I, I want to see something totally different. That's not fried. Yeah. But, uh, especially when they first roll into town, which they'll be doing here soon, you know, um, those first couple of days, it's hard not to just eat everything inside. I, I understand that. What's your favorite local restaurant outside the fair? Oh man, I would say, uh, I've had great experiences at, at crush at cask and cork. And then, Oh, uh, I really like Bangkok, Tokyo. Okay. Yeah. That's a oh, solid choice. Oh, I love it in there. Okay, when was the last time you visited Paladuro Canyon? This summer, early this summer. My wife and I, you know, since we've moved here, we're, we're not, uh, it's not like we've been that often, but we said we've got to go. We hiked Lighthouse in the morning, mm-hmm. a good experience there. And then we went back a few weeks later, I guess, and went to see Texas. Okay. So, great, great, great show. Two of the bucket list experiences. Oh, have to. Absolutely. All right. Last question is what's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? You've lived in big cities. Yeah. You've lived in other states. So the the people, although I don't know if they're underrated, I, I think the word is out on the people in this okay. area. I, I think the the like I mentioned earlier, the, the spirit, the the giving nature, the humble, the kindness, uh, that's things that people that I've talked to from all across the country that they it resonates. Amarillo in this area, I think the panhandle area are known for those types of people. Um I, would, I guess I would say like sunsets, sunrises, mm-hmm. and I probably took them for granted growing up in, in Lubbock and visiting here in Amarillo. But when I moved to Alabama and I, the trees, the sunsets low, I, I kind of miss that. Yeah, uh, you and, can't and see here, it. You, you can't see it. Uh, the the flat and and the, and the beautiful the sunrises and sunsets that we get here. I, I hope I, I need to learn be better about not taking those for granted because they they are astounding. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Well, of course, I, I got to give a shout out to the fair, right? I mean, uh, I, I don't know that a lot of folks know that we're a nonprofit organization. I mean, our fundamental goals are to increase tourism. Uh, we want to also support education. So this year we're giving $100,000 away to local students in terms of scholarships, which one neat thing about that, we're, we're going to give uh, we're gonna give $50,000 away in, into 100 students in the form of a $500 scholarship, and that's one part of that okay. 100000 And so we, we did a survey for them, and we're, we're asking them where they're going to go to college. And 51 of the 100 said they were going to attend either Amarillo College or WT. Okay. So 51% of those students are going to stay here locally uh, and that we're hoping to help educate. And we want to be known for that educational leader uh, moving forward. Uh, I, we're going to put a, a large emphasis on scholarship giving, youth education. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want 
folks to think the fair is uh, totally self-serving because we right. e- everything that we make for the fair is either pouring back into the fairgrounds to help recruit more events to to improve the fairgrounds facility or it's going to go straight back into the community in the form of youth education or or other nonprofit giving that we partner with. Are most so. of most of those scholarship students are they moving into agricultural fields or is it pretty broad based? Pretty broad based. I, you know, most of them would probably have an ag slant, but right. uh, they're going to be freshmen, so who knows where life is going to take yeah, them. But sure. the, but these are going to be future, yeah, doctors, lawyers, um, you know, any anybody you can think about. We're hoping to there's so many good kids in this area. And we want to try to give them that 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 next foothold uh, to where they want to go in the future. So. Okay, Brady Ragland, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I you appreciate bet. it. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Brady for the interview. The Tri-State Fair, of course, opens this weekend. You can learn more at tristatefair.com or you know just go to the fair. Also, make sure to pick up the new issue of Brick and Elm, which has a cover story by Wes Reeves about the history of the fair. Thanks to episode sponsors Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, to StoryBridge, and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, because people are out there and want to listen to it. I really do appreciate that. Uh, There's also a lot of local people that support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Jason Burr, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Josh Wood, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 317. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.